No. Those feeble arms. Oh. Um, well, just want to say good morning to you all and happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, glad to see everyone who's come out this morning. Uh, maybe, maybe you didn't have anything else better to do. Uh, well, now you're stuck with me. And so thank you for coming here. And also thanks. Uh, Zach decided not to say who he was, so I'll say who he was. Uh, Zach's a good friend of mine. leads worship at a church in Carmel called Genesis. Just an awesome guy. So thanks, Zach, and all the guys for... Yeah, give him a round of applause. Just awesome. For, uh, <clears throat> just for leading us in worship. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. So. Well, when Chris first asked me to do this again uh, from the video, I thought, man... I really have to one-up the last time I did this. He, he has me do this on holidays where people usually take off, so Memorial Day and Labor Day, uh, you're going to see a lot of me probably. Um, but when he asked me, I said, I have to one-up the last time I did this. I, I have to blow everybody's mind with the teaching, uh, something really deep, something really theological. Um, that's feeding back. Uh, something really smart-sounding. Basically, I just have to make myself just look awesome. Uh, well, God had something different in mind. And uh, let me know that very clearly. So... If you don't mind, I would actually like to tell you a little bit about myself. Some of you know bits and pieces. Some of you know me uh, more than others. You're thinking, oh, he's just this 24-year-old punk kid up there with a microphone. Um, but I'd like to tell you a little bit more about myself, so I'll sit down and do this. Uh, just, to, just to give you a little bit more information on me. Uh, my name is Derek, and um, I struggle with bouts of depression. And how I've got there, how I've left there, and how I've went back multiple times is the story of my life. Uh, But it's not the whole story of my life. My name's Derek. A lot of times I let anger get the best of me. What triggers that, how I get there, and how I leave there is is the story of my life. Uh, But it's not the whole story. My name's Derek. I let pride get in the way far too often, and I, I let myself think I'm far too important. How I've got there, how I've left there, and everything in between that is the story of my life, but it's, it's not the whole story. My name's Derek. I'm a sinner saved by grace, and it's only in God's furious love that I'm made whole. And that, friends, is, is the larger and more important story, and is actually the true story of my life. So this word grace, it's, it's kind of a buzzword in Christianity, right? I mean, we, we hear a lot about it. Um, it's actually a word we, we hear a lot of just in life in general, um, what is it? I mean, what is grace? We say grace before we have a meal. Uh, we sing a song called Amazing Grace. Um, we even use it in parts of life such as the athletics and sports. We'll say Michael Jordan had easy grace and LeBron James is lacking in grace. So uh, isn't that just a great picture? Is there any LeBron fans in here? Okay, good. Because I was going to ask you to leave. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but no, too bad Pacers didn't win, but it's okay next year. Um, yeah, but this word grace, we, we use it in a lot of different contexts. Uh, what does it actually mean? Um, it's a big word, right? Uh, not in the sense of confusing pronunciation or length or how to spell it. Um, but it, it's big in how deep its meaning is. You know, what, is, what does grace actually mean? And before I was doing this, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do a teaching on grace. And then I was like, well, what's that mean? Um, so I, I kind of looked around and did some research. And uh, an author named Brendan Manning, I think he sums it up well in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, and this will be up on the screen. Uh, He sums up grace this way. He says, My deepest awareness of myself is that I'm deeply loved by Jesus Christ, and I've done absolutely nothing to earn it or to deserve it. 
I'm loved by Christ and have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Grace is, is being loved by God, the creator of the universe and everything in it, and having done absolutely nothing at all to earn that or deserve that. You know, God loves us uh, just as we are with no hidden agendas, no secret motives. We don't have to do anything to earn this love. He loves us because we are us, because he is God. And, and that, that's it. This is the, the God of the gospel of grace. And the God who out of love for us sent his only son in Jesus, the only son he ever had, wrapped in our skin as a human, who learned how to walk, who stumbled and fell, who cried, was lashed with a whip, showered with spit, fixed to a cross, but then at the end of all of that, died on a cross, whispering forgiveness on us all. And I can't think of a better representation of what, of what grace is. So we hear this and we think, yes, like that's awesome. And that really speaks to my heart. Um, that's great. But put bluntly, uh, the church today, the American church specifically, uh, accepts grace in theory, but we deny it in practice. We say we believe grace, but then our lives don't reflect that. You know, we say we believe the fundamental, fundamental structure of reality is grace. Um, the foundation of our faith is grace and not our own works, but our lives actually refute that. Um, by and large, this, this gospel of grace, this living in an undeserved love, it's not proclaimed, understood, or lived. Uh, too many of us, too many Christians are, are living in the house of fear and not in the house of love. And we resonate slogans such as, uh, maybe you've heard some of these, there's no free lunch, um, you get what you deserve, if you want money, you work for it, if you want love, you should earn it, if you want mercy, you should show you deserve it, by all means give others what they deserve but not a penny more. Um, and I even once overheard someone say to a child, God loves good little boys. As though uh, God wouldn't love an innocent child um, unless he was considered good. We hear that a lot around Christmas time, right? Friends, this mindset and these kinds of ideas, they actually stand in direct opposition to what is really true. And though the Scriptures insist on God's initiative in the work of salvation, uh, meaning that it's only by grace that we're saved, and that the tremendous lover, Jesus, the one who loves the most, is taken to the chase and is chasing after us, our spirituality in our minds often starts with ourselves and not God. Whether we intend for that to happen or not, it, it happens. And when we focus on ourselves and not on God for our own salvation, what happens? Well, in the days following, we focus on overcoming our weaknesses, getting rid of our hang-ups, and reaching a Christian maturity. Um, we try to do this all on our own, and we think, I can do this. I can, I can will myself for this to happen. But then we get frustrated, right? We realize that we're really bad at fixing ourselves. And we say we want to work on five different things, on, on a specific five problems. And by the time we're wanting to start working on the second problem, we're struggling even more with the first than we were at the beginning. And so we get frustrated. And, and even that word may be a bit too light. Frustrated may not be a good word for this. Uh, we get depressed and we feel hopeless. We feel like we're out of control, like we have no control over anything. Now, working on issues in our life, um, taking steps to, to, to work on those issues, these aren't, things, these aren't bad things. In and of themselves, they're not bad at all. Please don't, please don't believe I'm arguing that, that we should never try to work on our, 
our problems. That would, that would just lead to chaos. Um, but we sweat through all of these different spiritual exercises as if they were designed to produce somewhat of a Christian Sylvester Stallone, that we, if we just keep working, we'll, we'll become immune to problems. And if we keep on trying, we'll just be able to power through them and, and muscle our way through them. But that's not really living in grace at all. It's trying to do it on our own. And though we pay lip service to grace, and we think we believe in it, we tell ourselves we believe, believe in it, we live as if only personal discipline and self-denial will mold the perfect person, the perfect Christian. We think if we just keep doing it, eventually we'll get there. We'll reach the pinnacle. And the emphasis here, in this way of thinking, is on what I do rather than what God is actually doing. <clears throat> and we, we think of God as somewhat of an old spectator in the bleachers who only cheers with a little flag when I show up for, for morning quiet time. He's got one of those foam fingers that say number one. But as soon as I'm not doing that, he leaves. Um, and we think he ignores us at all other times. Is only when I'm working hard does he actually love me. And at the end of all this struggle and all this work that we've done, we're confronted with this painful truth of our own inadequacy and insufficiency. You know, our security is shattered, our bootstraps are cut, and we finally discover our inability to add even a single inch to our spiritual stature. We realize we can't do it. And so the long winter comes, the depressing seasons where we're overcome by the ordinaries of life, by daily duties done over and over again, this constant trying and failing, and then things just don't take on the same light they used to, right? Um, Maybe you've been here. When we think of ourselves inadequate, things just don't carry the same joy that they used to. We begin to resemble the leading character in Eugene O'Neill's play, The Great God Brown, who says, Why am I afraid to dance? I who love music and rhythm and grace and song and laughter. Why am I afraid to live? I who love life and the beauty of flesh and the living colors of the earth and the sky and sea. Why am I afraid to love? I who love to love. Something here, friends, is radically wrong. The truth is, our huffing and puffing to impress God, our our scrambling for brownie points, our our thrashing about trying to fix ourselves, or trying to hide our weaknesses, uh, or trying to hide our pettiness, and we wallow in guilt, it makes God sick, actually. Um, and truthfully, it's a flat-out denial of the gospel of grace. And I don't know about you, um, but if I make this personal, this is a really hard pill for me to swallow. All those things I mentioned at, at the beginning about me, um, I'd like to think that I can fix those. I'd like to think I'm in control of those things. Uh, I want to believe so much I'm in control of my own life and my own salvation. I want to think I can will myself to do the right thing, You know, I can will myself to do other things. I can get up in the morning. I can will myself to get out of bed early. I can will myself to go to work, to go to the gym, to eat food. I can will myself to do all these things. Uh, Why can't I will this to happen? Why can't I fix my problems? And it doesn't make sense. Uh, If you think about it, it's like, why? This doesn't make sense. And uh, Paul actually felt the same way in his letter to the Romans. When he says, I don't really understand myself. For what I want to do, or I want to do what is right, but I don't do that. Instead, I do what I hate. And then he goes on to say later, he says, I want to do what is good, but that's not what I do. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Big uh, inner conflict here. He wants to do the right thing, but he doesn't do that. And he doesn't want to do the wrong thing, but inevitably, that's what he does. 
So here's Paul, one of the greatest contributors to the Bible. Um, if he understood he couldn't do it by his own works, why should we think our lives are going to go any differently? You know, we expect so much of ourselves, and on our own strength, we cannot do one thing right. But our egos don't want to accept that. My ego doesn't want to accept that. And when I think I don't have an ego about it, then that's me being egotistical. It's me thinking I can do it, uh, but I can't. And being in a, a place and relationship with God belongs to people who aren't trying to look good or impress anybody, um, themselves or even God. We're not trying to impress God. They're not plotting how they can call attention to themselves or worry about how their actions will be interpreted or anything like that. Wondering if they'll get gold stars for their behavior. Like there's like a, a big gold star, merit star board up in heaven and God puts gold stars up whenever we do something right. Uh, that's not how it is. You know, we don't have to struggle to get ourselves in good position for having a relationship with God. We're, I mean, we're already put in that position. God died for us, or Jesus died for us, and he wants to be in a relationship with us. You know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel or craft ingenious ways of explaining our position to Jesus because he already knows. He just wants us to live in the love that he gives and the grace that he gives. You know, the one who, who is in a relationship with God doesn't try to create a pretty face for himself or have to achieve any state of spiritual feeling or, or intellectual understanding. All he has to do is just accept what God has given him, and that's grace and love. That's it. We just accept it. Now, does this mean that we shouldn't try to do good things or good works? Not at all. That's the complete opposite of what should happen. God calls us uh, to express our faith through our actions. Um, we should do good things, good works. Um, but sometimes the motives can become a bit misguided. We're seeking to win God's favor by plunging into uh, spiritual activities, trying to give more, um, trying to spend more time in prayer, uh, getting involved in more church-related activities or groups. And we're just, all this doing, we're just trying so much that the motives are misguided. These are not bad things in and of themselves. Again, that's not what I'm trying to say. But the danger with our good works, our spiritual investments, and all the rest of it is that we can construct a picture of ourselves in which we situate our self-worth with what we're doing. And then complacency replaces sheer delight in God's unconditional love for us. On this constant doing and then getting tired and failing, that replaces the fact that God just loves us, loves us as we are. And this constant doing and not slowing down, it actually becomes the very undoing of the gospel of grace. You know, we associate our good works with how much God loves us. As though if I don't do more, God won't love me as much. <clears throat> so then there's a big question, and this is a question we should all ask ourselves, and that is, do we rely on our own resume, or do we rely on the gospel of grace? Because truth be told, a resume is pretty bad. Even for the best of us in here, our resume pretty much stinks. So how do we cope with failure is another big question we ask ourselves. <clears throat> Well, grace tells us that we're accepted just as we are. Um, we may not be the kind of people we want to be. We may be a long way from our goals. Uh, we may have more failures than achievements. We may not be wealthy or powerful or spiritual. We may not even be happy, happy with ourselves. But we're nonetheless accepted by God and held in His hands. And that is His promise to us in Jesus and a promise we can trust. It doesn't matter where we're at. Right there, we're accepted by God. 
And for those who feel their lives are a grave disappointment to God, um, this requires an enormous trust and reckless confidence to accept that the love of Christ knows no change and no alteration. It requires a lot of trust to believe that no matter what I do, good or bad, that God's love remains constant. And when Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, he assumed we would grow weary and discouraged and disheartened along the way. He knew all of these things long before they happened. He knew life would get hard and doing all the right things would become impossible. You know, just look at the disciples. They messed up a lot, and they're with, they're with Jesus. Okay, He knew that we were going to struggle as well. And this shows the humanness of Jesus. You know, He was fully God, but fully man. And He knew that following Him could be hard, and could be tough, and could be frustrating. And He knew that physical pain and the loss of loved ones and betrayal would just sap our spirits. And the day would come when faith would no longer offer any drive, and reassurance, or comfort. He knew he'd go through these seasons. And that prayer would lack any sense of reality or progress. Um, that we would cry the, or we would echo the cry of Teresa of Avila and say, Lord, if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. He knew we would go through these times. He knew we would go through hard seasons and that we would come face to face with the reality that our own works are going to get us absolutely nowhere. But when we wallow in guilt, when we wallow in remorse and shame, over real or imagined sins, over real or imagined mess-ups, we are disdaining God's gift of grace. You know, it starts with a preoccupation of self. When we feel guilt, guilt a lot of times it's, it's this, this focus on ourselves, and it's a major component of unhealthy guilt and recrimination. We oftentimes have the focus on ourselves and our own guilt. Although we feel bad for doing something, maybe to somebody or maybe to a group of people, uh, we act, actually focus on ourselves and our own unhealthy guilt. You know, it stirs our emotions and it churns in self-destructive ways and, and leads to despre- depression and despair and preempts the presence of a compassionate God. And uh, I don't know if anybody else has been there, but I've been there where this unhealthy guilt just kind of consumes my life. And the language of unhealthy guilt is really harsh, isn't it? Um, it's demanding. It's abusing, it's criticizing, it's rejecting and accusing, it's blaming and condemning and reproaching and scolding. Uh, This language of unhealthy guilt is one of impatience and chastisement. And we're shocked and horrified because we failed. We can't believe it that we're not perfect. Uh, Unhealthy guilt becomes bigger than life and it consumes us. And yes, we feel guilt over sins, uh, but healthy guilt is one which acknowledges the wrong done and feels remorse, but then is free to embrace the forgiveness that's been offered. This healthy guilt focuses on the realization that all has been forgiven and all the wrongs have been redeemed. You know, we all have shadows and skeletons in our closet, but listen, we, we all have them, but there's something bigger in, in this world than us, uh, bigger than we are, and that something bigger is full of grace in mercy, patience, and ingenuity. That's something bigger as God. And the moment the focus of our lives shift from our badness to God's goodness, and the question becomes no longer, what have I done? But actually, what can, what can God do? Um, release from this guilt and this remorse can happen. You know, you can forgive yourself because finally you're forgiven. 
And you can accept yourself because you are accepted. And you can begin uh, building up the places that you once tore down. Those areas in your life that you once you beat yourself up, beat yourself up over. You can begin to build those back up. You know, there's grace in every time of trouble. And that grace is the secret to being able to forgive ourselves. And we should trust it. And the wonderful thing about this grace is that it's for every one of us. You know, sometimes we can get caught up in thinking that this grace is only for a select few or or for those who have been following and trusting God for years as though when I first come to know God, I have to earn my my grace. Um, But it's for everyone at every point in time, no matter what's going on in their lives. And for this one, we're actually going to take a look at the Scriptures. And uh, this is going to be up on the screen. And this is from John uh, 8, 1 through 11. Uh, if you want to read this later, just a great, a great passage of Scripture uh, to read over. So we'll, I'll read this. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd, a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. And they said, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. We've heard that story before, and whenever I hear it, I just I get chills. Um, here's this woman who's been caught in adultery. She's been caught in her sin. We're not... There's no one defending her. She's been caught in her sin. Um, the religious elite of the day come bringing her out in front of everyone, um, in front of all these people for her to be judged by. And to get a clear picture, I really want us to get a clear picture of what this looks like and what this would have felt like. And I want us to know what this would feel like. So uh, Emily has been so gracious to be a part of this illustration. So Emily's going to stand up. Um, and uh, Now we see Emily standing right here. She's right in the middle right here. Um, now, if everyone could just turn towards her, if you're in the front, turn back for a second, and just for about 10 seconds, just stare at her in complete silence. <coughs> okay, so we've, we've stared at her in complete silence, and some of us were smiling at her. Emily's great. Um, but imagine what it would have been like to be uh, to be in this room, um, to be in a room, 250 plus people just staring at you. Um, you know, uh, you guys are staring at me sometimes, but, you know, not for anything like adultery. Um, Emily's great, has done nothing wrong, and we stared at her, we smiled. But just imagine being Emily, um, imagine being someone who's been caught in this sin and having everybody stare at you with this condemnation, this, this look of judgment. Um, just imagine what that would have felt like. Um, You know, it's scary enough to be in a room, uh, just 250 people staring at you for doing nothing wrong. But imagine what it would have been like if you would have been this woman who had been caught in her sin. You know, imagine the judgment. 
Imagine the pain and the shame that's associated with this moment. You know, if you've ever had a sin exposed in your life uh, or some tough area of your life exposed, a struggle, even to one person, you know what this pain and this shame feels like. We know what it's like to feel like we've screwed up, right? And by all human standards, uh, she deserved this treatment, right? You get what you deserve, right? Uh, If you want respect, you should earn it, right? Those are slogans we resonate. But the good news that is for her is the same good news that is for us. So here she is. She's out in the crowd. She's brought out into the open. And Jesus is in the crowd. And the Pharisees see him. And they have this idea that not only can she be punished for her sin, but they're also going to try to trick Jesus into saying something they could hold against him. It was like killing two birds with one stone, right? They said, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. See what she's done wrong? The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And they keep trying to demand an answer from Jesus, and he, and he just quietly stoops down and starts writing in the sand with his finger. I can imagine that, that really frustrated them. Um, I can see it now. The Pharisees standing around him, the crowd watching, the woman awaiting her death. I mean, they talked about stoning her. It's not like they talked about you know, having a trial for her. They talked about throwing rocks at her. Um, you know, she knows how big this moment is and, and what, is, what the weight of Jesus' answer is. Can you imagine what that is, just standing there caught in your sin, exposed, and just waiting? And so here's Jesus, and he just bends down, and he's just writing in the sand really quietly, not saying anything. And as they keep pressing him more and more for an answer, he just stays stooped down, writing in the sand. And I can imagine their frustration. Um, But then finally something happens. They keep demanding an answer, and so he stood up again. He says, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stoops back down and starts writing in the sand again. And I can just imagine him really calmly standing up and just quietly saying, okay, go ahead and stone her. That's fine. But the one who has never committed a sin has to go first. And then just quietly stooping back down again. And they all walked away. They walked away because they knew none of them were without sin. And that if they wanted grace for themselves, they needed to extend uh, that same grace to this woman. So they all walk away, and it's just her and him. And he comes up to her, and I can imagine that there was still a lot of fear in her heart, you know. Uh, Maybe she expected some type of punishment from Jesus. I mean, she did say, whoever was without sin, throw the first stone. So maybe he's got some rocks in his back pocket just waiting to throw them at her. Uh, Maybe she expected him to say, you know, you owe me for that one. I just saved your butt, so if you can... uh, You know, you owe me for that one. Give me some money. Something like that. Uh, Maybe she didn't know what to expect. Um, But he calmly comes over to her and he says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And uh, she says no. Um, And then Jesus says one of the most love and grace-filled things in the entire Bible. He says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. You know, did she deserve to be condemned? By all human standards, she did. Um, She had screwed up big time. By her own doing, deserved nothing. No grace, no sympathy, nothing at all. But that's not how it works, is it? That's not how Jesus works, is it? And that's, that's wonderful for us. You know, that's wonderful for Emily. That's wonderful for me. That's wonderful for everybody in this room. Um, and by our own doing, we know, we know we're going to get ourselves into more trouble. But though, the thing is, is grace is there for us. Um, and he loves us. No matter how hard we work and try, we can't save ourselves. Just as the song said earlier that Zach sang, you know, who alone can save themselves? 
No one. Um, this woman was at the mercy of Jesus and how amazing that grace was so much greater than her sin. And the same goes for us. So Emily, you can sit back down. Everybody give Emily a round of applause for, for standing there. I had to think of somebody that just wouldn't mind standing there for about five minutes. Um, so despite all of our trying to do things on our own, trying to be better people, trying to earn our own salvation, we always fall short. But Romans 5.20, which will be up on the screen, puts this in perspective for us. It says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more and more abundant. You know, the law is there not to tell us how bad, not, not to make us feel condemned, but to let us know we're sinful. But no matter how big our sin is, the God's grace is so much bigger than that. You know, this verse gives me hope. It doesn't condone sinning by any means. It doesn't say I can go on sinning because God's grace is bigger. That's not the case at all. But it lets me know that no matter how much I mess up, that God's grace is, is much bigger than that. And sure, I get very frustrated when I can't do things by my own power. And it's very frustrating to know that I have a sinful nature and that I'm not even in control of my own life and my own salvation. But the good news is, is that the one who is in control of my salvation and my life is the God who created everything and stands above everything Yet as big as he is in that respect, he's full of love and grace and compassion for me and for everyone. And now maybe this is new for some of us here today. You know, maybe you're thinking, I've been trying to do this on my own for far too long, um, and I'm getting tired. I'm tired of trying, and I'm ty- tired of failing. I'm tired of not feeling good enough or worthy. I want to live in this grace, and I don't just want to accept it in theory. You know, maybe this is something you lived in once, this, this, this grace, but you've gotten away from it. And when you first came to know the love of God, it was easy. Living in grace was easy. But as your walk as a Christian went further, you felt the pressure of being perfect and having been trying so hard to live perfectly for so long. When things don't go your way, you feel like a failure and you feel hopeless. And the, the wonderful thing is that no matter what we're feeling, we're still accepted by God just as we are, right where we are. You know, it was just him and the woman, the adulterous woman. He could have said a lot of things, right? He could have given her a lecture, uh, made her, her feel guilty about her past, or condemn her just like the Pharisees had tried to do. But this isn't what he did. A few simple words is all he spoke. He said, go and sin no more. Was this a call for her to be perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, it was asking for a change of her heart. It was asking that she just accept God's perfect love and grace freely and set her heart on him. You know, Jesus knew very well that, very well that she was still very capable of sinning um, and that all of us in here are very capable of sinning. I am very capable of sinning. And we sin often, right? But the, the cool thing is, is that the grace that is offered is so much bigger than that sin. So much bigger than our, our petty attempts at perfection, so much bigger than our weaknesses, our hang-ups, and our inability to add to our Christian stature. So we're going to close up here a little early. And what I want to do is close with a song. Uh, but before we do, I just want to give an opportunity to those who, who want to start living in this grace uh, for the first time or come back to living in it once again. We're going to do something a little different. So I'll ask everybody in here to, to close your eyes and bow your head. And no one's looking around. For those of you who think, yeah, this is something I can take hold of, 
I've done enough of my own, and I want to let go of trying to be perfect and let God take over. And just as you're sitting there with every other eye closed and head bowed, just, just look up at me. Um, that's all I'm asking. Is just look up at me. And you can look back down once you look up. There's also some of us who have been there before who once called grace home, but the pressures of life and the need to be perfect have weighed you down. And you're ready to once again let go of all this trying to be perfect and just let God take over completely. And if that's you, go ahead and look up at me as well. Just a quick look, and you can look back down. Okay. I'm going to say this prayer for us, and we're going to stand and sing this last song together. Um, It may be a new song to most of us here, um, but just reflect on these words and make them your prayer today. God, just as we're just a complete awe of how big your grace is and how much love you give us. We've, we've run away for so long. We've tried to make it on our own. And we've tried to impress you and, and impress ourselves and impress others. And Father, we realize that there's no need to impress anybody, but just a call to live in your love and to give our hearts to you. And that's what we do today, God. And we make this our prayer. Amen. There's a place for heavy souls There's a fountain Grace abounds and healing flows And the lost are welcomed home At the cross I've been redeemed Found forgiveness for my sin No more shame, no more guilt Hallelujah At the cross I give my life As a living sacrifice Saints and sinners lift your voice Hallelujah There's a place I must die that I might live in Christ. No greater love, no deeper joy, for your grace has led me home. At the cross I've been Forgiveness for my sin No more shame No more guilt Hallelujah At the cross I give my life As a living sacrifice 
so freely you died on the cross for us to forgive us our sin and we no longer have to carry that unhealthy guilt that unhealthy shame we recognize we do wrong God but we recognize that your grace is so much bigger than that we just thank you so much for that today and we make this our prayer Amen we'll know that you're loved in this place we hope to see you next week And, hey, have a great Memorial Day. And there will be prayer. Uh, If you want prayer for anything, there will be people up here at the front. You can come up here and get prayer. But, uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Right enough.